The world can be a crazy and uncertain place. I'm sure all of us today can, in one brief pause, name fears, uncertainties, anxieties, troubles. Some of these are going to come from our personal lives, straight out of our hearts. Fears, anxieties, struggles, uncertainties. Some of these may well emerge from the larger world. Maybe the situation in Thailand with the boys in the cave. Maybe politics. Maybe some deep concern about the violence and tensions and chaos somewhere. All of us can name heartaches and uncertainties and fears in a brief pause right now. But whenever we gather in this sacred space, this sanctuary, we have two goals that we're always striving for, two major purposes. Whenever we gather here as a community of faith, we are seeking to trust God more fully And we're seeking to serve God more faithfully with our lives. Every time we come into this sacred space, that is what we're striving to be about. Trusting God more fully and leaving this place to serve God more faithfully. In today's lesson from the gospel, we have two very distinct and different stories of Jesus. Some people might want to separate these. They're too different. The first story is about failure and rejection. The second story is about success and transformation. I think the stories go together. They absolutely go together for a very important reason, and the reason is resiliency, which is an important word for people of faith. Resiliency, an important word for people seeking to be more and more disciples who trust God and serve God. So listen to the words from Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. He, Jesus, left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us here? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he, Jesus, went about among the villages teaching 
out in the villages. He called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place will not welcome you, And they refuse to hear you. As you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you know that I remain a fan of singer and songwriter Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen has one of his major and most significant hits is entitled My Hometown. My Hometown. It's about driving down the streets of town in the car with his father, and his father reaches over and tussles his hair and says, take a good look around. This is your hometown. But then the song shifts, and the song begins naming tensions in the town. Racial violence, troubled times had come to his hometown. The song resonates so well because most of us have a sense of home. Most of us have a sense of hometown. Hometown is nice and hometown is nostalgic. Hometown can also be complicated, really complicated. This is a story about Jesus and his hometown. The hometown of Jesus is Nazareth. The Gospels differ about how Jesus happened to live in Nazareth. And according to Luke, Nazareth was the home of Mary and Joseph before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And they had to go to Bethlehem, you remember, because of a taxation census ordered by Caesar Augustus. But in the Gospel of Matthew, the home of Mary and Joseph is Bethlehem. That's when Jesus was born. And the family moved to Nazareth after they had left there, escaping Herod out of fear for their lives. They went to Egypt, and they came back, and they settled in Nazareth. However and whenever Jesus got there, the Gospels agree that Jesus is from Nazareth. That's his hometown. That's where he has his kin. That's where he has his home. Now, Jesus is not Jesus of Bethlehem. Jesus is always Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is his hometown because that's where he grew up. Archaeology indicates that Nazareth was a really small town, a small village of maybe 300 people, and it's located in the western region of the Galilee in northern Israel. Most of the residents of Nazareth were peasant farmers in Jesus' time, and if the tradition is correct that Joseph and Jesus were carpenters, they would have been part of a skilled artisan working class. They would have been uh, considered slightly different from most of the people in the town, but to say that they were skilled artisans doesn't mean that they were more middle class or better off than everybody else in town. Most often, those who worked in other skills beside farming had to do it because they had lost their farms for some reason. So 
There you go. The passage says, On the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. Now, since Nazareth, Nazareth is such a small town, it's not likely that there was a synagogue there. There were probably no public buildings around. More likely, Jesus spoke as the village gathered on the Sabbath, and he speaks to them there, not necessarily in a building. When Jesus spoke, it says, many were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? And what is this wisdom that's been given to him? This initial response seems positive, seems open. But then there's this obvious shift. Shift in the reception of Jesus, shift in the perception of Jesus. It becomes negative, moving toward rejection. Is this not the carpenter? Is this not the son of Mary and the brother of James and the others and the, his sisters? We know them. And it says they took offense at him. And then we have this most memorable verse from Jesus that reflect reality, that reflect sadness, that reflect his sense of rejection. Prophets are not without honor except in their own hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And it says he was amazed at their unbelief. Jesus came to his own hometown, to his own people, even to his own family, and they did not accept him. This is how John 1 says, he came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. There seems to be an issue here, a complexity in knowing and being related to Jesus on one hand, knowing, being related to him, isn't that him? And following him. There seems to be almost a barrier between proximity to Jesus and becoming what Jesus calls us to be, disciples. He came to his own, his own town, his own people, his own family, and the people did not accept him. The current issue of the Christian century has a picture of our president on the front cover. The headline asks, why do white evangelicals embrace Trump? The article confirms that 81% of white evangelicals voted for the president, a statistic that has attracted enormous attention from media, from scholars, from others. The article asks, how could a group so concerned about personal morality vote for a thrice-married casino mogul? How could pro-family Christians vote for a man who admitted freely on tape to sexual assault? Here's what Deuteronomy says to God's people. When you come into the land, do not forget. It was God who brought you there. Do not forget. When you have eaten your fill and you have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds of sheep and cows begin to multiply, do not exalt yourselves, forgetting the Lord your God. It's a warning. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, when you are full, 
Do not forget. Being full causes amnesia. Being comfortable causes indifference. Being secure makes us unresponsive. Sometimes those who claim to be the closest to Jesus are the farthest away from Jesus. And this is what we're always called to be aware of, beware of. Sometimes those who claim to be his own people, his own family members, and feel some proprietary rights toward him, even those in the church can be those very far away from Jesus. This is a prominent warning all through the scriptures. As we learn in other parts of the Bible, it's never about those who take the name of Jesus or, or claim proximity to Jesus. It's always about those who do the will of God in their lives. The book of James reminds us, what good is it? What good is it if you say you have faith but have no works? Or as Dallas Willard puts it so well, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it. We don't even believe something even when we believe we believe it. We believe something when we act on it. We believe something when we act on it as if it's true. Our calling is not to just say what we believe. Our calling is not to just talk about what we believe. Our calling is to act on it, act with kindness, act with compassion, act with justice, act with movement that brings about the kingdom of God, light, peace, joy, justice for everyone, act in ways that really follow Jesus. And this is where resiliency comes in. Resiliency is the capacity to recover quickly from the difficulties that come our way. Resiliency means an elasticity about us, an ability to bounce back and carry on. And this is what Jesus is constantly embodying and constantly calling us to. He shows amazing resiliency even when he's rejected, even when he finds discouragement, especially among his own people, and he keeps calling us to be resilient people also with the way we live our lives. It says Jesus went about teaching in the villages. He was not going to be trapped by the rejection that he experienced in his hometown. He was not to be discouraged by his own kin and their limits on him. He was not going to be beaten down by their unbelief. He called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them, flawed as they are as disciples, ordinary people, he gave them authority that he had. Authority over unclean spirits, Authority to heal and cast out demons. Authority to cure people and bring hope and life. Jesus dares, flawed as they are, to commission his disciples to promote the love and the healing and the hope and the redemption that comes with God's reign. He didn't just say, go. 
Go on your own. Go try your best. Go on your own power. He gave them his authority. He gave them his presence. He gave them his power. He gave them himself. Jesus also said, take nothing with you. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. They were to rely on God. Remember, the goal is always twofold. We're seeking to grow in how we trust God, and we're seeking to grow in how effectively we serve God. Having everything creates amnesia. We forget to whom we belong. We forget for whom we live. Being comfortable causes indifference. Being secure makes us unresponsive. We're called to go and serve. If you're wrestling with some sort of issue or some sort of decision in these days, reflect for a moment and ask yourself, am I being brave or am I being safe? In the end, it all depends on whether we think God can be trusted. Can God be trusted? That's what it depends on. What are are our lives fundamentally about? Are we trusting God? Are we serving God more and more with each and every day? This is our ongoing calling, twofold. Trust God, serve God. And yet it's so easy to get caught up in the whirlwinds that surround us, encircle us. We fret over what might happen to our stuff, to our reputation, to our standing, to our children, to our ideology, to our investments, to our city, to our nation, to our world. And in the process, in the process of all this fretting and worrying, we forget that our lives are always held by God and that our lives are always about serving God. That's what we're called to be about. God always promises to be with us. God gives God's self to us. God invites us to keep participating in the inbreaking of the reign of God in the world and all the things that we value. All the things that we value are never meant to be safeguarded. All that we have and all that we are is to be used. Our money, our time, our talents, our skills, our gifts are to be used for the inbreaking of God's reign in the world. What about that? The coming of God's light and hope and peace and presence and justice is calling forth our best gifts every day to be used in partnership with God for the healing, the redeeming of the world. It's not by sheer will that we become brave. It's not by sheer effort on our part that we shift from being successful in the world's eyes to being significant in serving God. This takes a constant transformation, a constant openness to God's grace. God does not call us to simply try harder at doing this, try harder to be brave. God keeps wanting us to train, not just try, but to train to be brave. We're not going to get there tomorrow, but hopefully by the grace of God, we will become more and more brave and more and more courageous and more and more effective at trusting God and serving God as we keep working on it with God's help and abiding care. Again, it's about our resiliency and our ongoing commitment to be transformed into the kind of people God calls us to be, disciples. 
Some of you know the name William Sloan Coffin. He's been one of my heroes for much of my life. He was at one time the chaplain at Yale during the Vietnam War and the civil rights crises. He was the former preacher at the a significant Riverside Church in the Upper West Side in New York City. He was a longtime advocate for peace and justice. And he was a critical but faithful patriot in this country his whole life. The last book that Coffin wrote before he died was a fictitious book entitled Letters to a Young Doubter in which he engaged a bright college student in an exchange of letters across a whole school year. And this book gave Coffin a forum, a forum to talk about faith, to talk about personal crises, to talk about priorities, to talk about perspectives, to talk about difficulties and hope, talk about what it means to live as God's own person. Throughout the book, Coffin keeps urging the young man to seek the common good rather than personal gain, to strive to be valuable rather than successful, and to make a difference, not just money. All through his own life, Coffin was too well aware that unless we define ourselves by certain values, the world is going to define us by its values. As the book unfolds, the student writes to Coffin that he may take a job as a lifeguard at a suburban swimming pool in order to make money so he could buy a car. Coffin replies with some stern words, I suggest you inscribe on the soft places of your heart these words. The primary reward for human toil is not what you get for it, but what you become by it. As a suburban lifeguard, you may well become a car owner and even a bit more charming but what else will you become what else will you become remember that the greatest perils to the planet arise not from the poor and the ignorant for whom education is the answer they are caused by the well-educated for whom self-interest is the problem be sure that as you grow and learn you are more and more concerned about your neighbors and their needs. Jesus keeps calling us to be resilient, especially as we seek to be formed, not in the ways of the world, but in the ways of trusting God and serving God. To quote Coffin once again, too many people have God frequently in their mouths, but not so frequently in their hearts. Instead of justifying our actions with godly talk, we should prove ourselves faithful with godly actions. We should express ourselves as fearless, vulnerable, dedicated, joyous followers of the risen Lord. Jesus seeks resiliency in the making and shaping of disciples. May God's spirit and grace so touch our lives to move us to deeper trust and more faithful service as God's people. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, make us, by your grace and spirit, instruments of your peace through Christ our Lord. Amen.